Welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Tom Slater, Deputy Editor at Spiked, and today I'll be talking Me Too, Feminism and Censorship with Katie Royfee. Spiked's articles, essays, videos and podcasts are free. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. So if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review, a rating, or even better, a donation. Just go to spiked-online.com and click on the donate button on the top right of the homepage. Without you, we wouldn't be here. So please give generously if you can. Now, on with the show. You know, I just think this idea that all men are guilty or presumed guilty kind of leads to the fact that that all women are innocent. And I and I ask that question, which is like, do we really want that innocence? Like, has that ever historically been good for women? Hashtag Me Too. Hashtag Me Too. Me Too. Me Too campaign. Me Too movement. Me Too. Me Too. The hashtag campaign that exploded in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal is, we're told, about women speaking out, talking about experiences of sexual assault and harassment they had been silent about for years, if not decades. But Me Too has also ushered in a different kind of silencing of women. Those who have criticised the movement raised concerns that some were conflating abuse with mere awkward encounters, that it risked promoting a fragile image of women have been howled down, dismissed, boycotted, trolled on Twitter by feminists in the most angry, sometimes misogynistic terms imaginable. My guest today is someone who found herself at the centre of one such rage. Katie Royfee is an essayist, an author and professor at NYU School of Journalism. Since the early 1990s, her fearless, free-thinking brand of feminism has sparked controversy. And when word got out that she was writing a piece for Harper's Magazine on Me Too, all hell broke loose. Here, she explains why. The piece was about the kind of Me Too moment in America, an analysis of what I see as a kind of weird energy behind the movement. So while I share many of the goals of the feminists um, involved in it, I was just sort of writing about... Um, a certain ambivalence I had and a certain weird energy I was detecting and especially a kind of intolerant of dissent. And when I went to interview women about this topic, I found that nobody would talk to me on the record and nobody would give me their names. They were sort of, I call, I started to call them the anonymous. I'd, I'd promised them I would keep them deeply anonymous. And I kind of <laughs> called them in the piece, the deeply anonymous. Some of them were saying things that are, you know, you you just aren't really technically allowed to say in our current climate. Like, for instance, somebody pointed out that believe all women is actually kind of a sentimental idea of women, that women lie as much as men and why shouldn't they? You know, sometimes people make a joke. Somebody would say like, why not me? You know, hashtag (laughs) why not me or what about me? Somebody wrote something in New York Magazine, a writer, and she was at somebody asked her for her phone number after a party in a taxi. He was like, everybody was drinking. He was sitting a little too close to her and he asked for her phone number. And that was it. That was like the violation. And and one of the anonymous kind of said, why is that a story? (laughs) You know, why is that even a story? Like, why is that interesting? One of my anonymous is from Mexico, and she just pointed out that she gets really nervous when there's no due process Mm. and the idea that you can just make an accusation because in her country for a very long time, like you could just be thrown in prison for 10 years for something you didn't do. And she emigrated to this country and she feels that due process is a really important part of our judicial philosophy. And she was just pointing out that the, the willingness to quickly rush to judgment seemed very, made her very uncomfortable, that kind of thing. You know, somebody said Al Franken. I don't know if you guys heard Mm. this story, but our 
senator who is who is kind of really thrown out of the Senate almost, um, forced to resign before he was given a thorough investigation of the charges against him and those kinds of things. I mean, nobody was saying they think men should harass women or it's okay for men to harass women. They were not saying like really outlandish things. But what they were afraid of was really, um, I think, both the kind of weird, random rage from strangers that you get, but also, I think, real professional repercussions. And, and one of the things that's frightening here, and I don't know if it's reached the UK and anything like that level, but people really feel like their careers will be damaged if they express ideas out loud. And I just, it's very frightening to get to a point where that is true. And I just, I can't look at these women and think they were being paranoid or, you know, overly cautious because they weren't. And there really is a sort of Orwellian thought police right now. And it, it was interesting. It was almost like a weird meta happening because what happened to me before the piece even came out really was exhibit A of what I was writing about in the piece. So there was a really insane hysteria, and it it was basically about some people's fantasies of what was in the piece. There was just sort of the rumor of this piece that was coming out in Harper's by me, and I, I think my name had something to do with the frenzy. Overtly, people were very concerned about my naming a woman who um, created a list called the Shitty Men in Media list. There's this online spreadsheet of men in media. What they're accused of doing, who they work for. It's unverified, anonymous. I did not name this woman in the piece, so it wasn't, it was sort of like people getting mad about something that might be in a piece that didn't yet exist. So it was a really strange thing, but they were starting to, um, first of all, there was a lot of name calling. So on Twitter, there was sort of like, calling me really extreme names um, and just kind of like sixth grade schoolyard stuff, like just insults, human scum, garbage, trash. An article published online today is already triggering harsh criticism for its author, Katie Royfe. You know, and these people weren't like crazy people. There was an editor at Esquire who made a Halloween mask out of my face where he he like mangled a photograph of my face and made a Halloween mask. And this guy was not like some random freak. He was actually an editor at Esquire, like a person in the business, media business. And somehow he thought that was a really good expression of his feminist beliefs to like mangle a photograph of a woman. I don't really like understand that thought process. But anyway, advertisers were pulling out of Harper's. Somebody offered like thousands of dollars to writers to pull their articles out of harbors to kind of create this boycott around this issue. And it was it was kind of um, mount this mounting hysteria surrounding, as I say, something I didn't say in a piece that hadn't yet appeared. And so it really was a kind of case study of censorship and a suppression of ideas. And, you know, people were calling the university um, – and they're calling NYU, trying to get me fired. If people were threatening to me, you know, you're never going to work again in some of these tweets, that kind of tenor. Uh, so it was it was a really insane moment. And it was definitely felt very much like another era. It felt like Stalinism. You know, it really felt like, you know, people were going to show up at my house at midnight and, you know, take me off to the prisons. Like, it had that feeling to it. And again all based on a fantasy. 
one of the points that you draw out, which is really interesting, is how as soon or very quickly, at least after the sort of Me Too campaign kicked off, is that proportion kind of went out of the window. And you saw on behalf of, for lack of a better phrase, kind of Twitter feminists um, being very comfortable with eliding misbehaviour with criminality, replacing serious sexual assault on a kind mm. of spectrum with creepy dms mm. um and what is it about that that you think is so alarming that there was a rush to just put all these things kind of in the same bucket as it were well i think it is um alarming for a lot of reasons <laughs> uh, i i quoted someone in the piece again not an obscure person but the editor of n plus one magazine who she said, I get the queasiness of, I'm paraphrasing, she said, I get the queasiness of no due process, but losing your job is not death or prison. So she was kind of saying really overtly, like, okay, some people lose their job, they didn't do anything, but like, they're not dying, so what do we care? <laughs> and, you know, this attitude that we're so angry that it doesn't matter if anyone really did what we said they did, it's okay to just make an accusation and have someone fired without even investigating it. Um, that kind of atmosphere seems to me very dangerous. And and part of why it's dangerous is, um, you know, and pe- people sort of accuse me of defending men. It's not – I'm not that interested in defending men. I'm really wor- more worried about women because I think when you say that something like leering, which is one of the charges on this shitty men in media list – Once you kind of put that forward as a instance of sexual harassment or something that we must protect women against, I think you're making a lot of weird assumptions about women and their own power in the world and their agency. And so one of the things that alarms me about it is that I think this this picture that women just walk through the world like terrified of all men and that anything, you know, a man like looking at you sideways is going to, you know, like floor you with like devastation. I just... I don't think that model of human behavior is actually good for women. And, you know, Joan Didion sort of wrote about this in the 1970s in a precious essay on on the women's movement. And she talked about this idea of women that was coming out of the feminist rhetoric of that period as wounded birds, she called Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, I just think this idea that all men are guilty or presumed guilty kind of leads to the fact that I write this in the piece that that all women are innocent. And I and I asked that question, which is like, do we really want that innocence? Like, has that ever historically been good for women? And in in my first book, I compared um, Victorian guides to conduct for young ladies to the date rape pamphlets being given out and how the language was actually sort of similarly condescending. And I, I see the same thing here in some of this rhetoric. Why has the conflict on the sexual battlefield suddenly come out into the open? In 1993, Katie published her first book, The Morning After. Sex, Fear and Feminism on Campus, which explored the date rape panic on college campuses and what she saw as the paternalistic, neo-Victorian drift of feminism. Today, her critique seems as relevant as ever. Joining me now, Katie Royfe, her book, The Morning After Sex, Fear and Feminism on Campus, caused a national stir with a new take on date rape. A lot of um, contemporary feminism does seem to emphasise a kind of female sexual vulnerability, the idea that women are sort of always about to be violated, always offended by someone's dirty joke. Um, and I think that this is and I think this is dangerous precisely because we are sort of promoting this idea of women as asexual. How does then compare to now, do you think? At that point, it's not that I did not receive a lot of hatred for my th- beliefs. And, it, you know, I would go give a talk on college campuses and people would try to shout me down. There'd be like picketers, I had death threats thrown into a bookstore, phoned into a bookstore once where I was giving a reading. So it wasn't like nobody cared. You know, it wasn't civilized. 
Um, there definitely was that same censoriousness. There's a big difference now in that in the 90s, I think you could make the appeal that there should be freedom of speech, that there should be freedom of expression. And I think now it's a pretty mainstream view that there are just some things you shouldn't be allowed to say, you know. And so when I tried to, I could in the 90s kind of embarrass people around the issue that we that there wasn't an open debate about, around ideas. In certain intellectual cultures, it was pretty much assumed that at least it was a good idea, even though in practice there was a little intolerance. But now I think this sort of sense that you know, that we need to have this kind of like safe space in our public conversation has gotten so out of hand that there's really only one version of that idea that you're allowed to express. Definitely. And um, one of the other things that you were very pressing about in the um, in the 90s, of course, was the kind of drift of campus sexual politics and feminism and towards, um, again, this very infantilized view of women in particular and, and the kind of meeting of the censorship to, to sort of tackle that. Um, and yet what seems to happen now is that that seems far more mainstreamed. I mean, it's interesting mm -hmm. to say that, you know, the people who are kind of shouting you down and sending you crazy texts and emails and whatnot are not necessarily just your kind of average campus crazy. They're people in the business. So yeah. do you think that's happened where it's become so much, it's kind of so much more permeated our culture, positions that we might once have thought of being kind of extreme Dworkinite type positions are now suddenly far more acceptable. Yes. And uh, one good example of that is like affirmative consent. I feel like the idea that you have to ask permission before you kiss somebody used to be this kind of thing you would make fun of. It was like there was a college called Antioch here that had these rules where you had to ask permission at every stage of sexual act. And like it was kind of pretty quickly most many people saw that that was a little absurd and highly impractical as a mode of human existence. <laughs> What's weird is now, you know, it's it's much more commonly accepted. It did feel like people generally recognized that things had gone too far in the early 90s, and there was sort of a pulling back. I, I guess I did not feel like that was necessarily the end of it. I mean, the reason I wrote the book I wrote in the 90s is I, I did feel like it was quite deeply embedded in a certain brand of feminism and liberal politics, some of these ideas, which it just feels like it would come out in a lot of other forms and has come out before and will come out again. That was sort of my feeling about it. And especially in this country, there's a very strong puritanical streak, mm. um, which does not get suppressed for long. Uh, and it, it affects both the left and the right. And just, I suppose, to bring it back to the current moment at the moment, it's trying to kind of grapple with and characterise what it is that's going on with this very kind of vindictive strain, which is something that you pick up on in the piece. So, for instance, you talk about the example of Lauren Stein at uh, the Parish Review um, resigning after there being allegations of kind of misconduct, misbehaviour at work, that sort of thing. And you quote the kind of celebratory <laughs> response yeah. that this sparks from a lot of people who seem to have no personal interaction with this. But nevertheless, it was almost like each individual case kind of vindicated them personally. It's very easy to get swept up in these conversations where people are talking about a single public man and and suddenly it really slips into like all men or this, or you're having a conversation about, let's say, the editor of the Paris Review, Lauren Stein. And I talked about a, a conversation I had about that. And all of a sudden, I could sort of feel that both my friend and I were getting really swept up in this. And were we really talking about Lauren Stein anymore? Or were we talking about like some guy who was mean to us when we were 25? You know, it really becomes quite personal quite quickly. And I think that the political language is very seductive. It's very alluring. 
to kind of use this language of salt and violence. And it, it, it gives you this kind of drama to your own life and your own very personal, intimate, intricate, complex, deeply complex, thorny, nuanced situation. It's just easy to slap on that political language, which is so easy and so appealing because you're the victim and you're like a shining hero and the other person like was wrong and the villain and it suddenly becomes we're not talking about one man we're talking about like hundreds of years of the patriarchy and i feel like that slippage is dangerous and uh rebecca traster a writer a feminist writer here wrote this line where she talks about how like some of us were just as angry about um a man who looked down our shirt at a company retreat as we are at harvey weinstein she she kind of acknowledged this is a little nuts, but but it really is a little nuts. And and I think to me, part of what's unnerving about this moment is this anger. It's very political anger. And this idea that it's like righteous, that if you're angry, anything you say is kind of imbued with this moral power. And, you know, I, I do understand it in a way, because obviously there have been the hundreds of years of patriarchy and there are lots of things in our political world to be very angry about. But the problem is I just don't think – I think it's also important to kind of think clearly and rationally at a certain point. And for all decisions and a whole kind of kind of climate to be constructed out of a kind of undiscriminating rage just feels to me a little bit dangerous. The Trump supporters shouting lock her up about Hillary Clinton are really not that different from the feminists calling me like human scum, bitch, retire bitch. Like all of that stuff is the same. And it's coming that particular language, which is really just about like who's matter, <laughs> like who's the maddest one of all, like that loudest, maddest person. These Twitter feminists do not get irony. <laughs> like, they just don't. I mean, I think it's very ironic to be, like, you know, hurling obscenities at a woman in the name of feminism. But I don't think these people think about that. Like, they're just not thinking on a level that would necessarily take into account irony, just any more than they're reading a 6,000-word piece. I also talk about how there's this weird similarity between Mike Pence's world and the world of these feminists. Like he said that he wouldn't have a meal with a woman who wasn't his wife. You know, this sort of weird, like creepy, puritanical way of thinking. It just there's a little blurring between these people and those people and that that the Trump supporters and their and their rage is it's it's really not qualitatively that different from this Twitter feminist anger. And you know, one side, they both think they're morally in the right, but there's something about acting out of that rage and kind of having your politics rise out of that rage that I think is so dangerous and so terrifying in both instances. And so finally, what sort of impact do you think this is going to have or potentially is going to have, particularly on kind of young women who are becoming privy to this whole discussion? Um, because again, there's a lot of dis a lot of quite dismissive commentary about, well, if a few men are afraid, that's fine. But if anything, it seems like there's a lot of potential here for a lot of women to be quite afraid. I have a 14-year-old daughter, so I think about this issue a lot. The culture is really sending her this message that she needs to be afraid, that she's like more vulnerable than she is. When I think about her, the idea of her internalizing this sense of women as so delicate and vulnerable and like and sort of like just the objects of sexual tension, not the kind of like 
creators of, you know, not, not kind of like actors in their own right. To me, the idea of her internalizing that is really terrifying. And I, I, I see it happening. And I, and I do feel like I, again, it's not really the men I'm worried about. It's really much more, you know, the 14 year olds kind of coming into this environment. And she already feels like she can't, you know, there are things she can't say about what is sexual assault that they can't have the, even have these conversations. And, you know, these new questions, sexual harassment, what is sexual harassment? What is an abuse of power? These are such complicated issues. Obviously, people are going to disagree on both sides and really reasonable, well-meaning people are going to have different points of view. There has to be able to be a conversation. And if in a school or a high school or a college, you cannot even have that conversation. I don't see how these things can be sorted out. I think it's a great place to end it. Really. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Excellent. You've been listening to the Spiked Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. If you enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating and a review. Head over to spiked-online.com to get your daily fix of spiked opinion. And while you're there, if you'd like to help us continue to produce our free and fearless journalism, please do consider making a donation. Thanks for listening and see you next time.